Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Orthodox Conundrum this week. I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing J.J. Sussman, the international director of Gesher. We talked about various divisions within Israeli society, and it was a fantastic interview. However, unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties, so we decided to re-record the interview again. And while the sound was better the second time around, J.J. and I agreed that the first version was actually better in terms of the interview. In any event, I often quote Lorne Michaels, the creator and producer of Saturday Night Live, who has said, The show doesn't go on because it's ready. The show goes on because it's 1130 on a Saturday night. Now, of course, I'll do anything to compare myself to Lorne Michaels. But in that vein, this episode is going up, the first version, the one which has a somewhat imperfect sound. But at the same time, if you listen carefully, I think you can understand what we're both saying. And along with that, we'll also be putting up the YouTube video. The link to the YouTube video, which is easier to understand, is in the show notes. So take a look down there, watch the YouTube video, listen to this podcast, and I hope you enjoy. It's a great interview. I thank you all for indulging us, and I thank JJ for putting up with the technical problems. One final note before getting to the episode. At one point during our conversation, J.J. and I referenced the recent attempted cancellation of Rav Eliezer Melamed Shlita by a group of important national religious rabbis. It has subsequently come out that that didn't actually happen. Apparently, the actual story, which we now know, is that a number of important rabbis signed one letter that did not reference Rabbi Melamed and had nothing to do with Rav Melamed. There was a second letter which did reference Rabbi Melamed and condemned him, which was not signed by those rabbis. However, an anonymous person put the two letters together and released them together in order to imply that the rabbis in the first letter also approved of the second letter. One after the other, rabbis from the first letter are denying that they have anything against Rabbi Melamed. So even though you'll hear that short discussion in this episode, please keep in mind that the story has changed since the recording. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The lack of unity among the Jewish people is as obvious as it is troubling. We all know that it's a problem and that it's been a problem for as long as there have been Jews. But the normal way of addressing it is by saying that unity is indeed achievable, just as soon as everybody agrees with my way of seeing things. Obviously, this isn't a method that's destined to succeed. Sometimes it seems that the gaps are too big, the disagreements too intense, the self-righteousness of all sides too entrenched for there to be any hope. J.J. Sussman, the international director at Gesher, disagrees strongly and says that all is not lost. He asserts that dialogue can do wonders, and here's the interesting part, he's seen some of those wonders with his own eyes. Like when a well-known secular Jew explained the Haredi refusal to serve in the Israeli army to a family, and was emotional when recounting that for the first time, Despite his continued opposition to that way of thinking, he was able to articulate and perhaps even understand where the Haredi side is coming from. We'll get to this discussion in just a moment. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. 
It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. J.J. Sussman is the International Director at Gesher. Prior to Gesher, J.J. worked in Israel's high-tech sector at leading firms such as SanDisk, Jerusalem Global, and Israel Seed Partners. Having made Aliyah from New York 25 years ago, J.J. now lives in Modi'in together with his wife and six children. J.J. Sussman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So I want to discuss the fissures, the gaps, the divide within Israeli and Jewish society. And I'd like to speak specifically about the gaps within Jewish society. Obviously, there's an issue with Jews and Arabs in Israel. That's probably material for a different discussion. But today we're going to talk about Jews specifically. JJ, you work for an organization, Gesher, which says on its website, I'm quoting, it trains Israeli leaders to forge connections and unity between different sectors of the Jewish people in Israel and the diaspora. So as an opening question, perhaps it's the obvious question, we know there are plenty of divisions and we'll talk about them. Why does it matter? Who cares if there are divisions? That's the way the world works. Yeah, no, look, I think there are definitely divisions and uh, obviously the world works by divisions, but I think it's a question of how we divide, how we discuss our disagreements how we interact with one another. At the end of the day, we're really one nation that's not that large. And I think if we, uh, we've seen throughout our history, the only thing that's really brought us down has been our internal divisions. Whenever there's an external threat, we know how to come together, whether it's Iran today or, or any other. It's the internal divisions that have, over the course of our history, been the divisions that have really torn us apart and brought us down as a nation. So yes, for sure, we know how to live with disagreements and with divisions, The question is how we can do that while also recognizing we're all still part of one nation and one family. Then let's talk about what those gaps are. Can you identify the major gaps that you see within Israeli Jewish society? You know, we did a poll about a year ago, uh, which asked Israelis what they believe to be the uh, most pressing conflicts within Israeli society. Uh, and, And what came out, we were somewhat surprised. Now, it was at the height of Corona, so maybe it's not that surprising. But the gap in Israel between Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, and the rest of Israeli society came out as the one that Israelis pointed to as the most pressing conflict facing us uh, here in Israel. And uh, again, while that's not necessarily surprising, I think what was surprising to us was the, uh, the extent, the numbers to which Israelis felt uh, that was the most pressing divide. And I think that's something that is uh, eye-opening and one which is within us to really try to heal or try to manage. Okay, we'll get to that divide in a second. I want to ask, I mean, I have lots of questions about that specific divide, including why it was surprising that the numbers were as high as they were. But what other divisions are there in addition to the Haredi secular divide? So, of course, you have the uh, Ashkenazim, Svaradim uh, divide. You have the right against the left. You have BB against uh, Rock Low BB, no, no, only not BB. When politics comes uh, comes into the equation, obviously, there's a lot. There's a lot riding in that as well. So I, I don't think anyone will be surprised what the divides are. The question is, I think, where we think we can make an impact 
to uh, manage those divides and, and what we think we can do about it. Is Israel diaspora another important divide that you would identify as well? Yeah, for sure. The Israel diaspora divide is one that we believe to be important. It's not one that uh, in that specific poll came up. It's not, we were asking Israelis uh, within Israeli society. But yeah, over the last few years, for sure, the uh, divide and certainly heightened again in Corona when diaspora Jews, and nobody essentially was allowed to enter Israeli society. That's one that is getting further and further away from us. And I believe strongly that if we uh, as a society uh, don't put our finger on that and don't recognize that divide, that is one that can cause us also great concern going forward. Let's mention and discuss that issue of concern, whether it's internal within Israel or the Israel diaspora divide. You mentioned before when I asked you about why it matters, your answer was we're a single nation, which, of course, I agree with that. The question is, is this simply a theological or philosophical problem because we want to be together? Or are there practical problems that emerge from our being divided, things that can actually hurt us as a Jewish people, not just on a theoretical plane, but on a practical one as well? Obviously, both. I think we, the Jewish people is both a religion and a, and a people. And I think first and foremost, the reason to be concerned about it is because we're a people and a family. And I think that, uh, I think that we need to recognize that. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we're not that big of a family. And once, you know, I'll, I'll share a story, actually, uh, if we can, about that. I, I sat with a, a leading Jewish philanthropist recently who was talking about how to transfer his values of philanthropy to the next generation. And he mentioned when it was just him, he was the one in the family who, who made, the, uh, made the money. And when it was just him and his wife around the table, it was easy to decide to which charities uh, to support. When it became time for, for his kids to get involved, he involved all of them, and, and they sat at his table growing up. So they basically had the same values. It wasn't a challenge. But then they started getting married. And there were four children. And each spouse brought a different value into the discussion. And that made it obviously much more exciting. But for him, it was super important to keep everyone around the same table and involve everyone in the discussion. So even if one of them wanted to fund something a little bit different, it was important for him to do it and to support it, to keep the family together. That compounded as you get now to the grandchildren. <laughs> and it's further and further away from, you know, from the from the roots. Yet still, he sees it as prime importance to keep the family together. So even if there is a spouse of a grandchild who wants to support uh, the environment in, uh, by, by planting trees in Kenya, or whatever the case may be, it is critically important for him to give everyone around the table a voice and to recognize that they are part of that same family. Because otherwise, you lose the family. And otherwise, you have fights within the family. And that's when things start falling apart. I think the Jewish people is not that different. We need to keep everyone at, around the table and give everyone a seat at that table. There are going to be disagreements. There are going to be different views. There are going to be somewhat different values. But we need to recognize that we are all one family. We're only 16 million people around the world, plus minus. We're not that big. And if we want to continue as a people, we need to care about those people. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, by the way, uh, who passed away about a year ago, was uh, an honorary patron of Geshe. And uh, he was, uh, you know, he obviously had many, many famous quotes. But one of them he said at a Geshe event, I remember very clearly, was that uh, I don't need you to agree with me, but I need you to care about me. And I think mm -hmm. that's an incredibly important message that we as a people oftentimes forget, but need to really take into consideration. All right. That's obviously a very important point. I want to get to solutions such as what Rabbi Saxon, you were mentioning 
eventually, first I want to talk about the divisions. Let's first build up the problem before we get to solutions. Let's talk about that first division you mentioned, the Haredi secular or Haredi society in general divide. And I'd like some help in defining this division exactly because- So would I. Oh boy, okay. I bet if you ask 10 Israelis to define this divide, you get 10 different answers. I mean, that's probably true for any question you ask 10 Israelis. But in this one in particular, what is defined as the Haredi or even the religious side? Is this specifically those people who vote for the Haredi parties like Shas and Gimel? Is it everybody who wears a kippah? Is it everybody who calls themselves Haredi, including Haredi Datilumi, what's broadly called the Hardal community, maybe associated with Harhamor Yeshiva, etc.? I don't even know what Haredi or religious means. And by the same token, I don't know what secular means. Is secular those people who are card-carrying, Ben-Gurion, we don't believe in the Torah, but we're Israelis, not Jews? Is it somebody who would say that I'm traditional, I light Shabbos candles, I go to shul sometimes? I don't even know what the divide means because it's a strange divide given that it's so acute and people say it's such a problem. I don't even know who's included on either side of it. So I think uh, you are highlighting part of the uh, part of the problem, or a major part of the problem. Israelis and people today in general are great at labeling, are great at putting people into uh, buckets. But what can we do when you meet somebody? You know, there's nuance involved. Everyone's uh, everyone's made up of many different identities. I don't know. I grew up in America, live in Israel, consider myself religious Zionist. You know, and I and I I like to tell people I send my kids to. An incredibly wide plethora of uh, educational institutions. I don't know if this will mean anything to your listeners, but I have a daughter learning in Nishmat. I have a son learning in the Shivani Lod Moreh, as he said, more of a uh, of a Haramur type place, I guess. I don't know, a Kav type place a little bit. I have a son learning in the Kor Chaim in, in the Gush, which is more of a, I guess, an open Orthodox place. Not open Orthodox in the... A Gush style place. Capital O, capital O, yeah. And then I have uh, a son learning in high school in Shalvim. And then two kids still in elementary school. And I think I'm this incredibly diverse kind of guy. Now, if you go into Tel Aviv and meet a secular person in Tel Aviv and tell them, oh, I'm incredibly diverse. I have kids learning. Look at where they're learning. So that means nothing, right? You're a religious Zionist guy. I get it. Okay, you are who you are. They think they get it. But I think that's part of the point that, uh, you know, Gesher's been around. We're celebrating our 50th year this year. And it's an organization that was started kind of after the Six-Day War when there were two factions in Israeli society. One, I would say the religious Zionists, the third were, you know, believe that we're in the times of the redemption and messianists and, and, and all that, you know, believe a religious fulfillment in the state of Israel. And there were the secular Zionists who believe, you know, that they were responsible for really bringing Zionism to, to where it is. And uh, Rabbi uh, Dr. Jenny Tropper basically saw this these paths diverging and felt that if we don't bring them together to at least meet with one another, and understand the other side, then we're really going to split into two into two countries. And I think it's the same thing today. The, the key is to meet. The key is to bring people together. Once you meet somebody and have a chance to talk to them and discuss their their backgrounds, their opinions, their values, you all of a sudden understand that those labels are really just that. They're labels. And everyone is really made up of many, many different identities. And you could still disagree. And we we value disagreement. But it's a question of understanding that Who's on the other side of the, that, that disagreement and what we can do with them? I mean, look at Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, right? They, they were the classic disagreement. Yet we know what happens there, and and uh, that, that's part of the Jewish people. Yeah, Beit Hillel 1 and Beit Shammai is all gone. I, I have a feeling, though, that some groups would like to say, I respect them, but I hope that they'll disappear as well. So there is an element of 
sure, I'll talk to you, but I'm right, and I'll tell you what I think, and I'll listen to you, but there's nothing really to discuss. I have a feeling that, especially with the Haredi secular divide, discussion, I'm not saying it would be futile, but it might not necessarily lead to any bridging, because I don't think a Haredi Jew living Me'asharim is going to accept the validity of a secular viewpoint and vice versa. I don't think a person living in Tel Aviv, living a completely secular life, will say that that person living a Hasidish life in Me'asharim, who won't send his kids to the army, that there's any validity to that whatsoever. I'm not sure what discussion would even do there. So so I don't agree with you at all. I think there are extremists, obviously, on, on all sides, and you're right. Obviously, even if we're successful, though, the extremists will believe, as, as you said. But I've seen, and I'm, I'm privileged in my work, to see again and again and again exactly what you said fall by the wayside. I'll give you two examples. We, we bring uh, leadership groups of about 15 at a time made up of Haredim, Chilonim, Secular, and uh, and and Datiyim. And we, we have a course where they're together for about six months, a few hours each uh, each week. And the climax of the course is a one-week uh, trip to a Jewish community outside of Israel. And there were two goals, really, in doing those trips, or certainly there were in the past. One was to uh, engender a sense of connection to the greater Jewish people amongst the group. And the other is the group itself. The group itself, as you take any group for a long period of time, you recognize they really gel and become like a family, essentially. So, so one of these checks went to Los Angeles. And we pair them, you know, we meet with the, with the head of the federation, some rabbis and some students and, and everything else. On Shabbat, we send them out in pairs to people's homes for a Friday night Shabbat dinner. One of the pairs that we sent out was uh, a Haredi guy, Yitzhak Nachshoni, very senior Haredi guy in the Haredi media world. And a Chiloni guy, I won't share his name, it doesn't matter, he's on Channel 2 News, but not Channel 2 anymore, Channel 12 or 13, I always get mixed up which is with, but a very secular uh, senior journalist. And they went out for Friday night dinner. Now over Shabbat dinner, obviously they discussed a lot of issues, and the army came up. Now the secular guy asked Yitzchak, they've been together already now for almost a week in, overseas, and they've become really close friends. And Yitzchak didn't have a good English, the other guy spent a year in the University of Michigan, and and had a very good English. So when they asked Yitzchak about the Haredi position on the army, he asked the other guy if he could translate for him. So he said the Haredi position, which is, you know, the primacy of Torah, we believe in protecting Am Yisrael, and therefore we don't believe in serving in, uh, in the army, we're doing our part to protect Am Yisrael. And the other guy had to explain this in English. Now, he came back on Friday night, I, I basically, in the hotel, accepted all the pairs who came back, and he, this guy, the secular guy came back and essentially was, was crying. He couldn't believe what, what words came out of his mouth. He always knew the Haredi position, and he always disagreed with it, and he still disagrees with it. But for the first time, because the words came out of his mouth from somebody whom he respected sitting right next to him, he understood that that guy really believed in what he was saying. And he understood that there's value. I totally disagree with it. But a little bit, I get it. I get where he's coming from. I don't know if we can continue you know, with only 50% of the country serving in the army, but, but I understand where they're coming from. There was a conversation that came about. I mean, that's just one small example that I see again and again and again. The other quick example, I'm going out of money here, sorry. We were involved, the, the Gesher Film Fund is a foundation that started within Gesher. It's now its own uh, organization. But Stiefel was the show, which obviously many of your listeners probably see now, which, uh, which came out of the Gesher Film Fund. It started in the Gesher Film Fund. I was privileged to be, I think, the first guy to take some of the actors and producers on a tour to some Jewish communities outside of Israel. So kind of like behind the scenes. So Gesher actually was there before Stissel started and started Stissel up? Is that what you're saying? The Gesher Film Fund started Stissel up. They were, they were there from the very, very beginning. 
Guess where I work today? We took them uh, to to the states. We recognized that there was a huge buzz, and we were the very first time that they went on this kind of like behind the scenes after it got popular on Netflix. And uh, and they're like, Stiesel was a watershed moment, I think, for not just its worldwide popularity, but even for Israeli society. At the time, we had a program uh, where we were uh, helping Haredim get jobs in society. And part of that effort was to run seminars in businesses to understand who the Haredim were. Not all Haredim were similar. Some were, you know, some were Hasidim, some were Litaim, and the like. And one of these meetings, we were meeting with an HR person at a big high-tech company, and she was a kibbutznik herself. And it got to the point where, where we were telling her about Haredim, and she said, okay, look, I'm okay if we bring me a Haredi like Kiva from Shnistel. <laughs> Not like his father. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, you know, it goes back to our earlier point, where even within the Haredi community, there's this red tip. There's, everyone's different. And everyone, you know, from the outside, everyone looks the same. But once you meet somebody, you recognize that there are all these slight differences and nuances. And, and the only way you can do that is by meeting and by being, you know, portraying one to the other. And I think those are important points that we need to do more and more of. Corona's made it hard because meeting has become more difficult and more challenging. But I think that makes us only double down on our efforts to facilitate those kinds of meetings between the different people. It's interesting when you talk about religious diversity almost being in the eye of the beholder. When you talk about your own family, you mentioned the beginning of your comments that to you, you are an extraordinarily diverse family. To someone who's not religious, they'd say, what do you mean? You are. Everyone's exactly the same. When I went to Brandeis University, they used to joke around. There were T-shirts people used to sell of the reasons to go to Brandeis. And every T-shirt had one line, you know, reason number seven, great religious diversity, orthodox, conservative, and reform. I think it all depends on your perspective. What do you think about getting rid of labels altogether based on what you just said? We all put people in boxes. That's the way it works. That's the way our brains work. But would it be a good thing to remove labels or do labels serve some sort of purpose? Uh, that's a great question. We take Israelis outside of Israel. So I don't want people to think that everything we do is flying somebody out of Israel. But we take in groups of 15 leaders as part of our Gesher leaders. If you want a free trip out of Israel, go to Gesher today, right? right. <laughs> right. So we take leaders. And, and you know, when we first started, people said, what are you, it's crazy. It's such an investment. When we recognize right away, so when you take Israelis outside of Israel, all of a sudden all the labels fall and they all become Israelis. If you meet with the head of a Hillel on a campus of Brandeis, you know, yeah, they seem religious and not religious, but essentially when they're asking, you know, the young American Jews today, uh, the Israeli army doesn't fit their values, all of a sudden it's how do we Israelis answer that question? And the exciting debates then, of course, happen within the group because everyone has a different perspective. But they're all trying to answer it as Israelis, as one of their identities. And, and most of the labels there, from, again, from the eye of the beholder on the other side, fall, fall apart. I think labels are somewhat necessary because, you know, you can't meet every single person in the world. So everyone naturally makes their own labels. But in today's world, they've become really uh, dangerous in many ways. That's a great segue into the Israel-Diaspora divide. I have one more question to ask about the Haredi secular or whatever we want to call it divide. Do you know how that animosity, because I think there really is animosity when we look at the negative sense, there is tremendous animosity between these two groups in a general sense. How did that begin? How did it get to this point? Uh, I'm not a historian, but I think if you look back at, uh, you know, we, we here in Israel are blessed to have the opportunity to defend Am Yisrael in, uh, in Eretz Israel, a privilege that the Jewish people hasn't really had in 2,000 years. And I think when that first started with Ben-Gurion in the, in the beginning of the state, there was the status quo of 400 Talmud Day Yeshiva who were allowed to learn. And I think nobody, you know, he didn't have any vision that the Friday community would grow as large as, as it did. And when you are a parent and your child is sacrificing his life on the line, 
You don't think about anything else other than who's not in that same position. That's on, on one side. On the other side, I think if you believe, you know, religion is 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 the answer to to everything, you don't understand anybody on the other side. Anybody who's trying to attack the religion. I think also the the mixing of uh, of church and state, as you will, and now politics, and that everyone's really trying to get a piece of that same pie here is uh, is poisonous. The poisonous to the debate, poisonous to religion, and poisonous to uh, to many other things. We see that again and again and again. When you have representatives on both sides who make statements on behalf of uh, entire swaths of communities, seemingly, it's it's hard not to get affected uh, by that. But again, I think once you once you try to take politics out of that and meet with the other side, it, it's a whole different uh, it's a whole different story. In that case, let's move on to the Israel diaspora divide. And personally, I'm very nervous, JJ, about this divide. On practical grounds, Israel does rely on United States support. And even though Jews are a very small percentage of the United States population, Jewish support for Israel has been a reason that both parties have traditionally supported Israel. Obviously, evangelical support at this point is probably much more important simply because it's such a big group. But say within the Democratic Party, at least, I don't want to get into politics, but within the Democratic Party, Jewish support for Israel is one of the reasons, presumably, that many politicians have traditionally felt an affinity for giving money to Israel, to supporting Israel in Congress, etc. Now that it seems, and maybe you'll disagree with me, now that it seems that Many Jews in the United States are feeling less of a connection to Israel for whatever reason. I get very nervous about the future on a practical level. There's also a non-practical side that Jews in the United States who, I'm speaking specifically about the United States, that's what I know best, but Jews in the United States who don't support Israel as a people, that simply bothers some on a philosophical level, on a religious level, on a theological level. So let's talk about that right now. Do you think this gap is as bad as I'm portraying it right now or as dangerous as I'm saying it is right now? I think the answer to that is, uh, I don't know, and we'll see uh, as, as time goes on. But it's certainly something that's worrisome, uh, certainly for the leaders of uh, Jewish communities uh, outside of Israel and within Israel. Uh, like with any gap, and when we see this again in Haredi, secular gap also, there, there are three ways to try to um, deal with it. There are three types of programs, three target types of programs that you can run. One is by bringing the two sides of the coin together in the room and having them meet with one another. One is by working with one side of the equation, and one is by working with the other side of the equation. So the Haredi secular community, some other thing, you have programs working with the Haredim, programs working with the non-Haredim, or programs which bring the two together. So on the Israel diaspora thing, I think it's the same thing. You need two to tango here. And I think the diaspora, there's obviously a lot of factors happening in uh, in society in general, in America, if we're going to talk about America, and around the world of uh, polarization and intersectionality and the younger generation's values and, and on and on and on. That is something which I think for, for us is, is somewhat beyond our control to uh, to affect. So we can either work with the Jewish community in the diaspora. We're based in Israel. That's somewhat difficult. There are obviously many organizations doing that, Birthright and and, uh, and and many others. We can try to bring them together, which is something that we you know that we do tangentially a little bit. But I think for us as an Israeli organization, what we really try to do is focus on Israelis and. I think if you go, you know, we talk about it, if we go to Tel Aviv and talk about my family, if you go to Tel Aviv and ask the, any guy walking on the street what they know about the diaspora Jewish community outside of Israel, nothing. They, mm-hmm. they, don't, they, they don't know it. And, and that's half of our people live outside of Israel. Again, plus minus. Half the Jewish people today still don't live in Israel. They live outside of Israel. So if we don't know about them, how can we care about them? So I think we have a two-step process here. We in Israel have to first and foremost become aware of the Jewish community outside of Israel. 
And then once we become aware of them, as a state of the Jewish people, we have to ask ourselves what that means. What are our responsibilities today at 73 years old when half the Jewish people today now lives in Israel? All of a sudden, the, the ship, you know, there's a paradigm shift happening. And what does that mean to us in Israel to take responsibility, to, you know, to become the state of the Jewish people? First of all, we have to get to know them. We have to get rid of the ignorance. And then the second stage is what can we do programmatically to take more of a sense of responsibility? Should we be, you know, should we be helping them educationally? Should we be not helping them? I think first and foremost, we need to be in conversation with them. We need to be talking to them. We need to understand who they are. And I think that's something we spend a lot of time on. Just in the last year, you know, during Corona, I, I ran into somebody recently and he said, how was Corona for Gesha? Many organizations really suffered during uh, the pandemic. Many people suffered, obviously. Ironically, we, on, on both of these issues, both the Haredi secular divide, which we spoke about earlier, and on the Israel diaspora divide, we started two uh, big programs. One, you know, we're speaking about now Israel diaspora, but we partnered with the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs to create something called Ami, Am Israel, which mm-hmm. is an effort uh, together with some major philanthropists, uh, major foundations and philanthropists to, uh, to, to do exactly what I said, to work systematically within Israel to create a sense of Jewish peoplehood amongst Israelis as a first step to creating the sense of responsibility towards the greater Jewish people. So you'll see programs together with Masai Israeli or bridging gap year programs with Nikhinot, or in the beginning, uh, in just a few weeks, we're going to have something called Shavuot Futsot, uh, a week where a lot of activities will be happening to focus on, on diaspora jury. And each, you know, each sector in Israeli society in their own way. But to engender a sense of Jewish peoplehood here in Israel, to care about Jews also outside of Israel, I think it's critical. Talking about how Jews in Israel have to care about Jews outside of Israel, obviously that's true. When it goes the other direction, though, one of the reasons I would think that Jews in the diaspora might feel a sense of alienation from Israel, apart from perhaps disagreeing with policies, is also the sense that Israel doesn't care about what they say. In other words, Israel is going to go ahead and make moves regardless of how it affects diaspora Jewry. For example, I heard this story many years ago. This is maybe 25 years ago, so I can't vouch for its authenticity, but it makes a point which is certainly true, which is that a group of non-Orthodox Jews, I think they were from the conservative and reform movements, were meeting with a Knesset member from the Labor Party a more left-wing party, and they were asking for his help in doing whatever it was, whatever changes to the religious status quo. And this Knesset member, as I heard it, certainly sympathized with them. He was himself secular. He had no interest in the religious status quo remaining what it was, but he said, I'm not going to help you. They were surprised. They said, why won't you help us? Don't you agree or identify with our position? He goes, of course, but none of my voters care. Now, if you want to change things, move to Israel. And then if you're a significant voting bloc, then we can talk. But right now, it would be political suicide for me to try and bring your position in Israel because your position might be very popular in the United States. But in Israel, at least this particular position they were talking about, nobody here cares about that. So I can't help you. And on the one end, one could say that is a very valid position. If you don't live here, why would you have a voice in changing the way the people who do live here have to live their lives? On the other hand, people would say, and this certainly comes up when it comes to things like the Kotel and various other areas, This is the state, as you said, of the Jewish people. It's not the state of the Israeli people. It's the state of the Jewish people. And accordingly, what Israel does should tremendously affect those Jews in America emotionally. And what Israel does should be affected by the feelings and positions and opinions of those people in Chutzlaret. What's your feeling about that? Yes, I think we should be uh, uh, yes on the one hand and no on the other. I think, 
Israel is an independent state, like you, like you said. And there are votes, there's a Knesset. And in the end of the day, that's the governing body of the state uh, of Israel. But just recently, there's a whole big discussion uh, about how to potentially give Jews not living in Israel a voice in some of the votes that affect Jews not living outside of Israel. The Kotel was one example you brought up. So around the Kotel issue, it's obviously, uh, it's, it's easy to understand why that might affect Jews living outside of, uh, of Israel as well. That being said, there needs to be some sort of real uh, process that's defined in order to enable that to happen. But I think the conversation itself about how to make that happen, I think is incredibly valuable. We need to not just show that we care, but we need to really care how Jews outside of Israel feel. First and foremost, because we're one family and we're Jewish people. But like you said earlier, there are also practical implications, security implications, long-term viability implications for all of this. And I think if we just shut the door and don't listen, to me, what would be worse if there's that, you know, we get to a point where there's no meeting even between their, the diaspora Jewish leaders and Israeli Jewish leaders. That would be horrible. The Kotel issue, I think, is, is doubly challenging for diaspora Jews because there was an agreement in place four years ago, probably already now. And then the government went back on something which was agreed on, which made it, I think, doubly uh, painful for those who, right. who came to that agreement. And that's why I think it's become such a hot, hot button issue. But yes, we should be talking to them. We should be hearing their pain, we should be feeling their pain uh, when they have pain. And uh, I think only in that way can we engender the sense of brotherhood and sisterhood and familyhood and peoplehood, which is so crucial, I think, to live as a nation. You know, before 73 years, we didn't have a state in Israel, and we were all diaspora Jews, essentially, even those who lived in Israel, for argument's sake. And I think we all have this yearning to have a state of Israel, and now we've got to the point where half the Jewish people live here. Let's not forget about the other half of it. Let's figure out how to facilitate that conversation and show that we care. Okay. Obviously, JJ, you're talking a lot about conversation. Dialogue seems to be the primary method that Gesher utilizes. Is that right? Yeah. I think our tagline in Hebrew is uh, to meet, to get to know, and to respect. This is my question to you. Obviously, I think that sounds great. The people who join Gesher, I would, if I want to play devil's advocate, I could argue Sure, you can have Haredi meet with Chilonim, you can have Israel Jews meet with Diaspora Jews. Perhaps, particularly with the inside-Israel divide, perhaps those people who meet are the people who already have a general sense of, okay, I'm open to the possibility of, of dialogue. But perhaps someone would argue, the vast majority are not interested in dialogue whatsoever. I remember several years ago, it might even be a decade ago at this point, there was a Haredi rabbi and a reform rabbi who wrote a book together and went on a speaking tour which sounds like the kind of thing that you would recommend. They were talking together, outlining their differences and where they agree. And the Haredi rabbi who co-wrote the book had to drop out because he got so much pressure from his community saying, you can't do this. You can't give legitimization to reform rabbis. So dialogue is great, but isn't that almost just taking the people who already are open to the concept and allowing them to speak as opposed to taking the people who really need it, those people who are not open, who won't even entertain the possibility of talking to someone from their perspective as a destroyer of Judaism? Okay, great question. I think uh, as an organization, like you said, that we focus on this all the time. Uh, certainly, we start with the people who are willing to, uh, to participate and who can participate. But I think if you go, you know, step by step and slowly but slow, you know, slowly but surely, you end up getting deeper into both communities to people who until now weren't willing to come to such a meeting or weren't willing to entertain the possibility of making change. And we've we've seen that happen over the last uh, number of years. You know, we started with Haredim who early on were considered uh, by the Haredi community outside of their community. 
But slowly but surely, you get to more quote-unquote mainstream people and mainstream Haredim. I don't know if you saw last week, there was a headline in which the Bells Hasidim announced they're going to start learning English and math and science, I believe, and, and the like. That's incredibly breakthrough for the Haredi community. Now, it's Bells or Hasidim, it's only elementary school, it's only first day eighth grade, but change happens slowly. And that's on the Haredi side. But I think on the Chiloni side, it's, it's not just on one side. I think we have to be careful not to just label one side as a challenge. Both sides have their extremists. I think if we can engender both a numbers game and an influence game on both sides as, as the moderates, as those who are willing to come to the table, to, uh, to talk with one another, they can drown out the extremist voices. And I think that's the challenge. There will always be extremists. Somebody gives the uh, example of a pizza pie, right? In the middle, you have everyone's close to one another. And the further out you go, you have the upper part of the slice and, and the crust. Those will always be the extremists and the hardest to bring in towards the middle. But if you can have a partnership of the, of the moderates within each side, and I think that's actually 80% of the, of the people in Israeli society. I think the numbers are much higher than, than we think. And there's a lot of things that we can do practically to get there. In that case, let me ask, are the divides getting better or worse in your mind? Which is another way of saying, is Gesher, pardon the expression, spitting into the ocean, not really making an effect because you're trying to simply slow down an inevitable slide to greater extremism? Or are people actually coming together? Because sometimes, JJ, it seems from looking at the Knesset that the divides are as deep and as entrenched as always or as they've ever been. On the other hand, obviously the Knesset is its own separate problem and perhaps political dialogue and political discourse is a bad way of measuring what's really happening on the ground because people have to play to their extremes in order to get elected. What do you think? So, so like with anything, I think there are always ups and downs. There, you know, there are always external factors which happen. There are always uh, you know, uh, events that happen which, which make it worse or make it better. And I think there are always uh, ups and downs. I think we can't afford not to try. I think we can't afford not to do the work that we do. I think a world and an Israeli society without an organization like Yesher would be incredibly worse off for not having the effort put in to try to bridge that divide and to try to bridge that gap. I, I jokingly, I say that I have a lot of job security. The Jewish people are always disagreeing with one another, like you said. So I don't know if we'll ever get there 100%, but I think we can't afford not to try. We have Another sentence that we use in Hebrew, which sounds better in Hebrew probably, is we try to make uh, Israeli society from a chevra mikutevet to a chevra miguvenet, from one which is polarized to one which is diverse. Now, there's richness in diversity. Nobody's trying to get rid of the diversity, but I think we need to try to extract from the diversity the positives which everyone brings to the table and go forward in, in that way. How can we get past what I've seen? Again, I'll use the Knesset as an example because that's what is said publicly. A horrible example. <laughs> I know, but I can't help myself. The delegitimization that happens so often that we see people saying, not just that I disagree strongly with you, but you are invalid. You don't deserve a seat at the table. Using one example that's happened recently, there was a reform rabbi who's been elected to the Knesset. And the religious parties, or at least some of the members of the religious parties, are saying not only that we don't like what you say, but you cannot be in the Knesset. You are basically a destroyer of Judaism. You don't deserve a seat at the table. That's something which is much more difficult when you say someone isn't even legitimate, That not that I disagree with your voice, but that your voice can't even be admitted. 
and more recently, in the past week, we heard, and this is even within the religious community and we even within the Datilumi national religious community, that Rabbi Eliezer Malamed's Sfarim were said to be completely not acceptable by other members of the religious Zionist community, saying not that we disagree with his Piskei Halacha, but we don't accept him as a person. He's unacceptable, almost excommunicated, not literally, but that sort of attitude. What are we supposed to do about something like that? So first of all, I think it's incredibly painful to hear uh, things uh, like that, and the tone and the uh, extreme language uh, that's used. Uh, and I think, look, take Rabbi Lezer Malamed, and you have a community halacha right there behind you, is that what you're trying to get? I, think, I guess you see what side of the divide I'm on. <laughs> no, but look, even Rabbi Lezer Malamed, there are one million copies of his uh, halachic works in already in the homes of people. And yeah, for, you know, so you can't just dismiss that, and you can't just uh, throw that out. Now, it's a challenge. And I think the tone is what bothers me more. People can disagree with him. I think that I'm all for disagreement and all for argument. But I think the tone, like you're highlighting here, I think that's the bigger challenge. How do you deal with the tone? How do you deal with not letting them have a seat at the table? And, and again, in the, in the case of Muhammad, I think he never said anything bad about the other people. He's And, and he's not hiding his opinions. He, he wrote books about his opinions. Well, that's the problem. They so don't like. They don't like the opinions he's saying. As to why his opinions aren't aren't the ones that we should we should go by and convince us, you know, from the other side. I think that's that's a challenge. You know, I heard other rumors about why this is happening now. There's politics involved and a cheap rabbi vote happening in the next uh, year or two. And there are other underlying reasons as to why this is happening now. But but I think, again, we need to focus on how to lower the plans. You know, polarization is not just happening here in Israel. And, and you spoke about the Knesset. One of our donors, another one of our donors, told me a story. He used to be a staffer on Capitol Hill, you know, 30 years ago or more. And he said you were considered a hero if you got a bill passed. He worked for a, a Republican congressman. But you were considered a hero if you got a bill passed. How did you get a bill passed in those days? You had to get the other side to vote along with you to get a majority. So you had to give in on some things. You had to get the other side to give in on some things to make it palatable for them to pass the vote. And then the bill got passed. Today, it's the exact opposite. You're considered a hero if you stand by your morals, your side, your position, and don't budge one inch. You're considered the hero. And no bills get passed because everyone's standing entrenched in their own position. But we're stuck. We're stuck as a society. I think you could take that same example to any case here. The, the you know social media is partially responsible for it or whatever the case may be intersectionality and other big words that they're talking about. But we need to get past that. We need to create those bridges where different sides can come together and talk about these issues, talk through them and get past the other side. And we focused it, you know, we focus on the Jewish people. I think it's critical, critical for us as Jewish people to learn how to get past all this stuff. Okay, JJ, it sounds a lot like what you're saying is that the perfect is the enemy of the good, where if each side is extremist, fundamentalist, stays entrenched in his positions, then there can never be a bridge whatsoever. And obviously, Gesher, being an organization which means bridge, wants people to somehow meet in the middle. But on some level, and perhaps we'll conclude with this idea, I'll see what you say about it. It sounds to me almost as though you're not saying you really want to bridge the gaps, because let's be realistic. I don't really believe that the Haredim are going to meet in the middle with the Chilonim such that they both come to a middle position which they can both accept. I think that's probably unlikely. I think what you mentioned before, diversity is the key here. Not so much that they agree with each other, not so much that we find a middle ground, a middle road, a bridging of the gaps, 
so much as that they simply recognize the legitimacy of the other's position, which will lower the heat tremendously. Once the flame is lowered, it's not that now we're going to have a position that we're going to agree with and there's going to be one party in Israel because everyone agrees with the same idea. It's more that I still believe very staunchly what I believe and think that you're wrong, but I at least allow you to sit at the table because I recognize that your voice isn't illegitimate fundamentally. Yeah, I think, you know, it's unity, not uniformity. And the bridge, I think exactly like you said, nobody ends up staying in the middle of the bridge, but they can go back and forth and go back to their side or visit the other side and then come back to their side. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. Exactly right. I don't want to get rid of Haredim. I don't want to get rid of Chilonim. I don't want to get rid of religious Zionists. What I do want to do is to create a society which is cohesive, to create Chayim Shutafim, to create a joint living space where we can all live our lives and find those bridges when we need to you know, solve issues together. But yeah, definitely live within our communities. And that adds to the richness of our society, of our people, and of Jew- the Jewish people in general. So absolutely. Okay, well, J.J. Sussman, this is very interesting, and I think you're doing very important work. Thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Scott, it's been great being here, and keep up your great work as well. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.